Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Create Invent podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Jeremy Cook, and joining us today is Hash. I can't tell you what company he works for because it's illegal for me to tell you that. But he's been uh, reverse engineering smart power meters, the electricity meters that are on the side of your your home that uh, report to the power company and tell, you, tell them how much money they have to charge you every month. How are you doing today, Hash? I'm doing, uh, I'm doing real good. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for being here. So, so now, now, Hash, as far as what we have you on for, you reverse engineer a lot of different things, and especially, especially smart meters. So, I guess just just for our audience, what would we, what do you say is reverse engineering? What, how do you define that, even? Yeah. So, I guess at a at a really high level, I've just always enjoyed taking things apart. So, I like taking things apart. I like learning about them. And I didn't know what that was called when I was a kid. It was just taking apart my toys and breaking them and then eventually being able to take them apart and put them back together. Um, and then eventually learning what those components do and trying to modify things and, and change the way they work. And then, you know, as I got older, I, I realized, you know, that's that's reverse engineering is what you're doing a lot of the times. And then and then as I take things apart now and really dive into them, uh, it's, you know, it's kind of like I tell people it's like taking a puzzle and you know, a million pieces turned upside down with no picture and trying to put it back together piece by piece. Um, and so it, it can be tedious and everything, but it's a, it's a fun challenge. And I, I like the challenge more when it's a really black box kind of challenge, you could say, where there is no documentation on things and, and you really have to just go figure it out on your own. Um, just because you can Google so many things today and just find the answer so fast that it's fun to have a challenge where you can't just find the answer real fast. Like you have to figure it out. And so, uh, that's usually the, the kind of road I go down, which smart meters seem to fit that bill a bit. Sure. All right. So smart meters is your, I guess what you like to hack. Is that kind of your, your favorite target? If, if I can call it that. I would say so for right now. So this is, this is a smart meter for anyone that's wondering what a smart meter is. It's the thing that's on the side of your house. It's usually got a little thing on the screen here, and it's telling you how much power um, your house, your apartment, or a business is using. And so I would say that uh, my background and what I'm good at, I kind of started out as an embedded engineer early on in my career. Um, and so I'm very comfortable with hardware, with uh, you know working with hardware. I've always enjoyed radio. Um, I had an amateur radio license when I was a kid. Um, and so that mix of things, devices that transmit, wireless communication, uh, a lot of times things aren't completely understood about different wireless communications and how secure they are. So all that stuff, it, it all kind of fits in where I feel like is my wheelhouse. And so that's why I, I think when I started working on smart meters, it, it hit all those points. And so I kept diving in further because I felt like, hey, this is something where I'm really comfortable in this zone. I'm not as comfortable working on like a big software project or something, for example. So I don't go towards that. I go more towards hardware. Sure. And and these smart meters, basically, they're on the side of your house. Like you said, they keep track of how much energy you're using. And then they communicate, I believe, what they use, use a mesh network sometimes or even a um, like a cellular, cellular connection to, to basically dial home to the power company and tell you how much you Yeah, owe. so there's... 
there's a ton of different standards. Um, I've focused a lot on what's available here in Texas and kind of what's on the side of my house and, and looking at that, right? But there's a ton of different standards. There's all different ways wirelessly they can transmit back. Then there, and that just on like, you could say um, a proprietary mesh network or a proprietary protocol. Sometimes there's a truck that drives around and just receives messages from some meters. They can have cellular modems in them. Some countries have cellular modems and they're on a cellular network. Sometimes it's power line communication. So they'll actually communicate over the power line. So some countries, it's a lot of it is by the standards of the countries and what's allowed and how the grid is maybe laid out and things like that. So it's just, it's all across the board. Yeah. So, so when you say a mesh network, so basically these these smart meters, each one is talking one to another, and basically it filters down to like a central hub. Is that is that kind of right? This is just random stuff I have. So here's our here's our picture. So these meters right here, they all transmit, and and they're broadcasting constantly. So people people say like, oh, they transmit your information once every fifteen minutes or once every hour or something. They're constantly transmitting, like more than once a minute. They're they're transmitting status stuff, broadcast messages, all kinds of network things to help other meters find and join a network. So they bounce those messages between each other. So you can think from house to house to house. And then you'll drive around and you'll see, especially out here, on a pole, kind of a bigger, bigger type white device that's um, a router. So it's picking up these messages, sending it up high, and then transmitting it back to like a substation at a power company. So so there's a lot of technology in the meters that are forming this big kind of self-healing mesh network. If you park your car in the driveway right in front of the meter, it might block its transmission path. And so it has to figure out how to get the data somewhere else. It might log it internally for a while before it sends it back. So, so there's a lot of um, complexity, I guess, in that in that mesh network to route that traffic back to the power company. The neighbor that parks his noisy Wi-Fi Tesla in his driveway is goofing could up be, the power company. Could be could be anything that's that's <laughs> blocking it. You never know. Um, and yeah. so they have they have memory chips inside of them that will store stuff. You know, if it's temporarily blocked or blocked for a longer period of time. Um, and it's a two-way thing, so it's not just transmitting back to the power company. The power company can actually send messages down. So here in Texas, you can go to a website called smartmetertexas.com or .org, and, and if you go in there and it's linked to your, your power provider, you can say, tell me what my instantaneous power usage is. And in about 10 seconds, you can watch the traffic with software-defined radios. You'll see a message get sent to your meter. Your meter will turn around and send a message back. And so you can see hey, in about 10 seconds from wherever the main headquarters is, it bounces a message across that network to your meter and back and, and shows your instantaneous wow. power usage. Yeah. That's that's pretty awesome. I, I guess I always think like, you know, you know, if you were the technician, you know, working at a call center at the power company, people call you and just give you all kinds of grief about something or other. I mean, I guess you could just press the button and flick their power on off, right? Is that you could, you could. They probably get press fired. But so here, let me show you in in the back of the smart meter. So this is the back half of it. The front half has a circuit board that's doing all the measurement. The back half, this is actually a massive relay. It can switch um, 200 amps at 240 volts. So it's like 48. Thousand watts, I think is what it is. So, and it can it can do that a couple thousand times is what it's rated. So it's meant that you know, especially on networks where you might pay for power, uh, like a pay as you go kind of power provider, 
you know, if you don't pay your bill that month, they can just send a message right down in that same 10 second time frame. It can come down and tell that relay to turn off and boop, all your power goes out. So that also was real interesting to me when I found out that inside of every single smart meter is basically a huge relay that you can turn the power on and off and that some signal that gets sent down can do that. Uh, you know, then it's kind of the hunt for, well, what, what's a signal? And these so, meters uh, that you have all behind you here, they'd be the kind I would have on my house here in near Dallas. Yeah, most likely. They're, they're all pretty similar out here. They all, you know, because Encore is a big provider out here. And then there's a lot of smaller providers, but they all seem to have kind of standardized on pretty similar, similar meters. Yep. So, so yep. Uh, I, I got to ask, have you ever, uh, you know, flicked somebody's power off? Just, and you don't have to tell us, but. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, definitely if I did, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, that's. So, um, well, so no um for the record uh but what i would say is that um a lot of what i'm doing is looking to see uh how you can communicate with the meter so how i can build a device that can transmit on that same network and also once i'm able to send messages to them and have them receive those messages then you know what can you do can you can you fuzz it and cause issues um it, you know, what is the message that would ultimately switch power on and off? Um, I'm, I'm sure it's not a very simple message. Like it's, you know, it might be a signature of some kind that's needed to actually do it. Like they are fairly, fairly complex devices. But um, I know that, you know, it, I, I don't know how many people are trying to attack it. So you never know how, how secure it really is um, in the sense of, you know, what, I guess, what level of attack has it gone under? So I, I would say it's like this. There's two sides kind of you could think of to the network. There's someone that goes over an IP side of the network and gets a hold of some main control center and then sends messages out to turn things off. I think that's a traditional attack vector people think about is someone comes in over the Internet, gets some malware or something in and then takes control of industrial control systems. There's the other end, which is you're able to come across the wireless mesh network side that people might not be thinking someone would come across and then send direct messages directly to these devices. So that's been the the direction I've looked that is maybe a little different than what you traditionally see people look at. So I could drive down the neighborhood with a truck and just be spamming out turn off. Yeah, you could you could do was, uh, Yeah, I'm I mean not technically I can, but so so the interesting thing is when the meter turns off power, it doesn't turn off power to itself, right? It's switching off power down to the house, so it's still on even when it tells when it turns the power off to the house. So technically, if you could send out a message, you could just have them relay it and broadcast it across their own network to oh, all the jinkies. meters. Even worse, yeah, right. To you know, oh, so so they're yeah. So it, it you know it does open up possibilities if you're able to figure things out. But like I say, it's it's definitely uh, it's it's no easy task. Um, but I think you know it is an interesting one to to play around with. Yeah, and you said that they only, the relay is only rated for so many switches. That could be another attack too, right? Just flip somebody's house on and off. 2, yeah, I guess it times, could. And then, a, yeah. then somebody has to come out to fix it. Yeah, I mean, the, if you're able to just, if someone was able to turn something off and then change the firmware so that it wouldn't accept a turn on message, then that would be pretty disruptive, right? Because yeah. then somebody would have to come out and and physically do something or, or something else, you know? So, so there's a lot of things like that. They, you know, nothing that's happened as of yet that I'm aware of, 
um, anywhere. But uh, but I think the less that people look at it, the more likely it is something like that could happen, right? Especially as the tools like the software-defined radios and these other things I use to analyze them, the cost of those keeps coming down and down and down. And so it means more people can can uh, play around with it, right? Sure. You know, what's interesting, you know, we're, I guess everybody was quite worried about, you know, cyber attacks and stuff in the last, last couple of months, especially. And I guess I haven't really heard much about that. I'm kind of, I'm kind of surprised that you think, do you feel like things are maybe more secure than people thought? Or you think, you think it just hasn't been done or what? You mean just kind of in general, like the, uh, the higher alert that went on about watching out for. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, as far as, you know, we just talked about, you know, Russia and Ukraine and stuff like that, you know, you talk about hacking and stuff like that. They People were quite concerned about that kind of thing, but it just doesn't seem to have happened here, at least at what we've heard of. You think you think that what is maybe things are more secure than people thought or you think they just haven't considered it? Um, I'd probably be commenting outside of my realm of expertise in that. Fair you know, enough. I might think I might think maybe things are more disconnected. Like I, I think the security and, and these devices, you know, on the on the whole, there's not a lot of times they're meant to last in the field a long time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, years and years that these a lot of these systems are meant to last. Smart meters are meant to last like fifteen years. That's the ROI for the power company. They stick it on your house and, and it has to last fifteen years. And so the the microcontrollers and things like that that are in them, right? Like all the vulnerabilities that can be found and stuff like that, like 15 years is a long time to last. And that's the same thing with these other industrial control systems. So, you know, I think, I think maybe they're doing a good job of keeping them bridged away from other stuff um, or, or things like that. Or it's just, you know, nobody hears about it because they don't want to, you know, it's usually it's bad press for a company or for anyone else. So that's the challenge with a lot of this stuff I find is that the desire to keep things quiet and to not have things be publicly known drives a lot of stuff. Um, and so that was a big push of when I was working on stuff to say, um, how do we do it kind of more more in the public's eye so that if there are issues or things people should know about, we just all find out about it at the same time. And and it's not something that's done hidden away, you know? Sure, sure. Well, what, what, you, what you do with this experiment with this, do you feel like it makes you maybe more paranoid about what, what could happen? Uh, well, I mean, from being out here in Texas and seeing the power go out, you know, in the that kind of February, that that was a little concerning to see, you know, how quickly things kind of seem to fall apart if the power goes out. Right. Especially when you have an extreme like a cold temperature or a hot temperature or something else. Um, but I guess working on it, it doesn't make me any more uh, paranoid than I guess knowing about anything else. You just I, I just know that things usually they aren't as secure as people are telling you. They're just kind of on the whole, right? And that if you don't understand how it works, then then that that should be concerning in itself. And I think it should be concerning for a lot of the people that you know that purchase these systems and deploy them, um, because you're kind of just going off the promises of the vendor and and what they're telling you of how they work. Um, and so and analyzing it, you know, it, it can be a bit complicated, like it's, you know, specific sets of skills and things you need to look at these things. And that's usually not people they have on the, the payroll. And so then they also depend on some other third party company to come in and, and certify them that things are good. And so there's a lot of, a lot of people that, that don't really know the, the full picture, or 
whatever else right so sure uh, yeah that's true it's uh it definitely takes a certain skill set to, to be able to hack hack this kind of thing i suppose as, as you've certainly found out i was so now you have a, a faraday cage in your house is that is that right yeah, so I, I actually have a small one that's down here on the floor. I would rotate this thing, but I might break the whole setup. Oh, that's um, fine. Uh, but it's big enough to hold a smart meter um, and some antennas and things. And it's got a lid that opens and closes. You can kind of see them in some of my early uh, videos on YouTube. And And so what that allows me to do, so when I was first kind of analyzing these devices. And just, just to, I guess, clarify it for the audience, a Faraday cage basically keeps all radio frequency signals in and and out right so it's like a isolated chamber basically yeah you think of it almost like as a sound booth but for radio frequency waves right so so if you look at if you look at the meter itself if i turn this on it's just going to start broadcasting data out kind of all over the place um and so there's a few reasons to use a faraday cage one if i turn it on i don't want it to try to talk to the network around here and when i first started working on these i didn't know whether it would talk to the network or not, or how it works. And I didn't understand how the network was segmented. And, and there's a lot that I've learned since I started. And so I wanted to just contain down any signals that were coming out. Also so that when I'm using my software to find radio, I also kind of get rid of any other ambient noise. And I just mm -hmm. say, let me just focus on what is this meter transmitting and how can I understand it? Then further down the road, I started to start to try to talk back to the meter and to figure out how can I send messages to it. The same thing, I don't want those messages just going out over the air to meters that are around here. I wanna focus it to things I own, you know, which is the key. I can experiment on things that I own, um, not on things I don't own, which would be the smart meter network around me. Um, and so the Faraday cage allows you to do that. And so when I put these devices in, it creates like a sealed environment. Um, and it's only so sealed though. It's like if you were in a soundproof room, but you just hit bullhorns and everything else, like people will hear it kind of outside. Faraday cages are similar. You know, they're dampening down, but they're, it's not going to make everything completely go away. So I also took apart some of my early meters and I disabled like the power amplifier that's in them mm -hmm. so that when the meter goes to transmit a message, it can't talk as loud as it used to. It's a much quieter message. Um, and then I ensure when I transmit back, I also transmit back a quiet message. Okay. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, one of the tools to, to work on those things. How much equipment do you need to work on to do this kind of work? I know, you, uh, I know software defined radio stuff. You could buy those little $20 dongles from AliExpress or something, and you can receive a lot. I know they'll do a lot, but would you be able to get started doing something like this with on the low end or do you need very high end equipment? No, I mean, that's the, I guess that's the thing. You can kind of start with anything, right? So like when I started, I didn't start with all this stuff that I have. It's kind of, you know, the obsession has driven the purchases, I guess. Um, when I started, I just had an RTL SDR for 30 bucks, right? One of, uh, and that's a so software-defined radio, so basically you can make make your it's act like anything, correct? Like radio-wise. Yeah. So from a so I guess for people the 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 most incredible thing about software-defined radio is prior to software-defined radio, every time you wanted to receive a different signal from a garage door opener or a radio-controlled car or a smart meter, or whatever, you had to build specific hardware 
that was tuned to receive that kind of signal. So what kind of modulation was it? What frequency was it on? So the, the cost of attack was incredibly high. Like you had to essentially be like an RF engineer and understand how to do stuff or buy specific hardware and tune it to receive specific frequencies. What software defined radio changed is you literally take all that stuff that was hardware and you do it on the, the other side of the USB, you do it on the software side. So in software like GNU Radio um, and other tools, you can basically tell this thing, I want you to receive on 900 megahertz. And then in the software side, you say, and we're gonna decode frequency shift keying, we're gonna parse the data this way and spit it out. And so, and you can, so this can be an FM radio, uh, and tune that. It can pick up aircraft transmissions. It can pick up smart meter stuff, all for thirty bucks. Um, and so that's, that's you know, it's an incredibly powerful tool. Software defined radio is because all these things that used to be black boxes that were hard to attack, specific radio devices on all these different frequencies with different modulations and all this stuff. It doesn't matter anymore. You can just do it all in software. And depending on what program you run, this little device can do all those different things yeah that's, that's incredible so so you, you got you can get started with one of those just hacking a, a meter you can listen to what it's saying you can send back messages once you figure that out i guess yeah so you can't send back with one of these <clears throat> low-cost ones but you can receive and so some of the tools that i've written um that that receive the data there's a GNU radio block i wrote called um smart meters gr smart meters and it decodes this grid stream protocol, which is what the Landis and gear meters use. I have a few different kind of versions of flow graph that you can open in there and they're defined by the different radios. Um, so there's an RTL SDR one you can open. And so it's tuned for this specific software defined radio or uh, a blade RF or a, a hack RF or these different devices. And the difference in the software defined radios is really how much spectrum can they receive at the same time? So, you know, this one can receive two megahertz basically at the same time, around two megahertz. So I could listen from 902 to 904 megahertz and anything happening in that range, I'll hear it all at the same time. Hmm. But I can't listen to anything wider. Smart meters transmit from 902 to 928 megahertz. So it's like a 26 megahertz bandwidth and they're hopping around all the time inside here transmitting their messages which is one of the initially hard things to deal with it's not just like tune to this one frequency and listen in you have to listen to everything all the time and then grab all these little tiny bursts of transmissions and decode them and spit them out to try to get a full picture of what's happening with the network the more expensive the software defined radio the more kind of bandwidth you can receive at the same time so so if, if you were willing to spend the money you could get one that listen to everything from 900 to 928 if if you if you wanted to is that, is that yeah correct? I mean, and it's yeah i'd say probably for like 400 bucks you can get one that does that okay. um depending on what kind of deal you get on it um a hack rf can do 20 megahertz so a hack rf for 199 can almost do the whole thing um and so i got a, a whole ton of software to find radios you know and uh and they're running and and most of the ones i use can pick up the whole range and they also have transmit capabilities oh, um for nice. other for other experiments you know and for anybody who wants to play with this stuff at home for thirty dollars you can receive all day long without a license it's it's legal for any of us to receive pretty much whatever we want to is that pretty correct I, yeah i so i would say probably i'm not a lawyer so legal to receive 
that you know that um, that in itself is probably topic for a whole other conversation. Um, but you know, there's nothing illegal about about generally receiving data, especially in a band like this 900 megahertz band, because it's called like an ISM band, which is um, industrial, scientific, and medical devices. So it's it's an open, license-free band which is one of the reasons the smart meter company chose it. They don't have to pay anything to use that frequency range, but there is a bunch of other stuff in that range as well. So they had to come up with a communication scheme that could hop around and be resilient to other transmitters that might be in that range um, since everyone's allowed to use it license-free, basically. Wow. Well, you know, this all sounds, um, it's like it sounds very simple and easy to do, but at the same time, very, very hard from a specific standpoint. Is there a, is there say a website somebody could go to to see what uh where other people have started on projects like this maybe get some tips so there's my wiki that i've set up um which is called richesum um it's r-e-c-e-s-s-i-m so wiki.richesum.com and what i've tried to do there is there's a lot of stuff about smart meters there's also stuff about other projects that people are working on and it's free to create an account over there and to kind of you know post your own stuff you're working on. And the idea is to have a place where people can uh, you know put their reverse engineering projects they're working on, so everyone else can can see what's being worked on and and try to share um, ideas. I also have a Discord channel um, where a bunch of people we chat about different things like that related to um, reverse engineering. So so that's that's one sense. Now there's and on there I link things like. Um, Travis Goodspeed has some good um, uh, articles. He, he manages a thing called POC or GTFO, which is like a whole reverse engineering journal. Um, and he puts those out for free. I have links to those on my on my site as well for people to check out. Very, very awesome. And is that, that's Latin for going backwards? Is that, that right? Yeah. So, so Richesum's Latin for moving in reverse. It's also a free, uh, it was free on the dot-com side which is always a challenge is finding something that's available. So I wanted something that, um, you know, pronunciation wise, it's a bit of a challenge because how do you, how do you say it? Um, but I was looking for something that was available and it's something that, you know, that meant something at least related to what we're doing, which is reverse engineering. Um, and so I encourage people to post anything on there. A lot of times the challenge when you're starting out is, especially if you look at something maybe that's a project that's further along. Like if you go look at all the smart meter stuff and things that I've posted, there's a pretty good amount of information. It's like, you have to keep a couple things in mind. I've been working on that for a, a couple years at least. Right. So, so that's not, you know, one week's worth of stuff. Um, I've also been doing this kind of for a long time. And so I always encourage people just take something apart. that's interesting that you can't find anything about and post some pictures. Like that's the first step. Just, someone else can find some pictures and then maybe they contribute something and add some other piece or as you go further you add some more pictures or some information what are the components that are used so to break it apart into to smaller chunks but to err on the side of sharing stuff that maybe you're unsure about versus trying to have this full great picture and you're gonna post a, a finished product right it's never really finished it's kind of always ongoing oh for, for sure it's um it's it's shameful how many projects I have that I never quite quite get finished, or maybe it's not shameful. I don't I don't know. Maybe maybe that's something I should be proud of. I, yeah, I, I think I'm I'm fine with not finishing stuff anymore because you know it's it's fun to start stuff. I do like to try to at least document it a bit. 
like so, which that's always a challenge. I, I don't even do it as much as I would like, but to post some stuff on the wiki or to put things out there and document it, because then when I do go back to it, at least I've got a record of where I was. And if somebody else wants to kind of jump in and, and help, well, they can also see where things are. And that's where I notice a lot more as people join my Discord channel uh, and things and they start asking questions. Me and the other people are usually like, as they figure stuff out, we're like, hey, you should probably put that on the wiki. Like, that's great information, you know, yeah, so the sure. rest of us can advance what's happening. Well, that's awesome. It seems like seems like something that, um, you know, maybe there's not a, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, that's awesome to hear there's a resource for that. Because otherwise it seems like, you know, before, I guess when we were growing up way back, whenever that was, you know, that probably was a lot of stuff you just had to figure out. Everybody had to invent their own individual wheel and that's that's not the most efficient way to do do anything <laughs> so. yeah i would i would say that um when i so i've noticed a similar thing that a lot of people have blogs they have different places they post stuff you might be on twitter and some there's a thread somebody starts of good information but it just gets lost over time um and it becomes hard to find it when you're working on stuff and so a long time ago um i worked on reverse engineering this little lidar that was on a robotic vacuum, um, this neato vacuum. It had a little uh, LIDAR that it used to map your room. And there was a challenge that was put out to see if anyone could reverse engineer this. This was like 10 years ago, probably. Um, and and I did that and I, I managed to win the challenge. There's like some links of things online you can see. But as I was doing it, I created a wiki on this, this place called Wikispaces that I think it no longer exists anymore. And I had to take the thing down. But when I created that wiki and started posting just what I found, like a hundred other people that joined this thing and everybody started kind of group reverse engineering this robot and posting every single thing about all the different areas. And it just out of nowhere, right? A shared common interest of posting stuff and helping each other out. And so I was a little irked when they went out of business and had to pull the stuff down and it went away. And so I thought when I started doing this, I thought I'm just going to create my own site. I'll, I'll pay for the hosting. I'll you know set up this media wiki thing and everything else to, to run it and just make it free for anyone to come and join and, and post stuff because there's a lot of value in, in that. And it's like you're saying, you know, when, when I was younger, you'd search the internet and find stuff and you did manage to find stuff. Uh, that was awesome. And it helped you advance. And so I, I kind of think the same way, like, it's nice to help people advance and to help other people that are searching stuff and you never know where they are in life and career or aspirations. So it's cool to have a, a resource, you know, that's just out there with stuff like that. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, uh, I guess I was thinking, Pat, you want to go ahead and take the coffee break and we can come back and, uh, ask some more questions of hash. G Jeremy, I would love a coffee break. Yeah. So, uh, we'll take a coffee break and we'll be right back and we'll, uh, have some great questions. So, or good, good questions at least. We'll we'll see what happens. Or at least questions of some. Or sort. at least questions. <laughs> so you hit record, I guess, Pat. Uh, welcome to the coffee break. This is the Create Slash Invent podcast, and it's where we, I guess, uh, talk about how you can support us. You know, first of all, we love it if you leave like a thumbs up or a comment, or you know, just leave some sort of some sort of interaction on whatever medium that you're listening and or watching this on. Right, right, Pat. It's true that gives the uh, the medium that you're watching it on, like a YouTube or a SoundCloud or an iTunes, it lets them know that you're participating, and that's nice for us. That helps us. That helps us out tremendously. Of course, as we do every week, we want to give a shout out to our top top five Patreons. Right, right, uh, right, Pat. We do, and I'm going to count. I've got both hands ready for numbers. 
All right, so so first of all, we've got Carl, and Carl Carl had a uh, special request that we uh, turn up the volume on our podcast. So we'll we'll try to we'll try to work on that for you this week, just just for you, so you don't have to adjust the volume when you're in your car. Michael Sizer, you know we like you as well. You were on the podcast one time, so that was that was awesome. Raptor creatively spelled. You're the only one who spells your name that way on the podcast. Stuart Morrow, you have a standard spelling, so that that's good too. Brian Moses. Also a fairly standard spelling. And then Positive Waves, uh, standard spelling, but he's got a uh, underscore in his name as well. So just, just wanted to point that out. So anyway, thank, thanks all of you for your, your uh, patronage, your, your help out on the podcast. And we will uh, we'll try to get the volume correct for, for all of you. What if, I, what if I wanted to become a patron of the, oh, the Create that, Event podcast? How do I good, become a patron? That's a good idea. We, we probably need to need to figure that out. So you need to go to patreon.com slash create invent is that right i don't even does that work? i always forget because mine Patreon. still says the creativity podcast oh yeah you're right you could go to create invent all one word oh patreon.com slash create invent yes create slash invent in fact if you want to go to patreon it's patreon.com slash create invent no like no secondary slash or anything you know what i'm nope. saying pat I do know what you're saying, and I will also make sure everybody knows you don't have to become a patron. We won't be mad if you're not a patron, but we do appreciate all of our patrons. It makes us feel like it. it makes us feel very appreciated, and I'm very yes. appreciative. Thanks so much, and we'll get you back to your show with Hash. All right, uh, welcome back from the coffee break. Uh, Pat and I are here with Hash as as we were before, and. Um, Anyway, we got a. As Pat said, we have some not not just good questions, but questions. So true. So um, so Hash, I I guess one thing we wanted to kind of ask is: is there anything anything that doesn't necessarily fit in on your YouTube page, YouTube channel that maybe you'd want to want to talk about, tell the world about, or or what what have you? Yeah, I would I would say that um, I've kept I've kept YouTube very focused. Uh, especially recently on smart meters and this journey of reverse engineering smart meters and all the different things I'm trying. If you look at my early days YouTube stuff, some of it was amateur radio related. Um, it's still on the reverse engineering or, or that kind of side, but it, it quickly moved into smart meters and stayed there. Um, but a lot of the things I work on, like all, all of these things, it's not that I had some crazy inherent interest in smart meters it was just a thing that allowed me to learn about a lot of different topics that i enjoy so i've always wanted to be able to be kind of like a master of software defined radio but i feel like for me i need a project to to drive the mastery so i won't i might sit around and learn about software defined radio but ultimately what is it you're trying to do so this receiving all this frequency hopping data really drove me um and then I, I might want to learn how to dump firmware from a microchip, but like, well, which microchip and why? And maybe you pick an easy one when it's in a certain device. Well, then you're kind of constrained of, OK, I have to figure out how to dump this one. I can't just pick an easy target or something. Um, so sure. the learning is what has, has driven it. So I would say I'm also incredibly interested in like reverse engineering silicon. Um, so, you know, all the way down from uh, early days when you had um, smart cards and satellite TV and people would work on, uh, you know, hacking satellite TV and stuff like that and, and how that would be done and how people would initially get data from those smart cards. 
um, and people that specifically reverse engineer silicon to like look at the silicon, dump out ROM images, or use tiny, like incredibly tiny probes to actually touch data lines on the silicon while the chip is running to read out data from the bus of the chip and you to mean the tools that are used. The chip. Not just the inside pins, the chip, you take not the, the pins of the, the chip, chip, but I'm talking, yeah, using nitric acid and sulfuric acid like I got in the garage to decap the chip to get to the silicon itself, the place where you can't keep any more secrets, right? Like once you're at the silicon yeah. level, like there is no secrets anymore, right? So, so how um, how small are these probes? Because I mean, you hear about silicon being in the you know nanometers thickness or yeah. whatever. How do you? How do you even do that? That seems yeah. So the pro the probes these like tiny little hair. I mean, hair is like way larger than what the size of these probes are. I mean, they're touching stuff that's on you know the forty nanometer scale, like the you know the process to make some of these chips. So they're able to actually reach in and and touch on there. So there's a couple tools that have really interested me that I've been shopping the last so many years, kind of quietly, and and that's a scanning electron microscope. Um, and a focused ion beam workstation. So, and and one's like really, an order that of magnitude. Really yeah, it's it's super esoteric, you know. And and you know, if your neighbors saw it in the garage, they'd probably call somebody on you. Um, but they they allow you to look at essentially the silicon level. And so, when you look at the analysis, there's kind of different layers of analysis you could do with something. So you could think, okay, we're going to look at an app that runs on a phone. So it'd be an app analysis. And then you could say, okay, we're going to look at the operating system that runs on a phone. So you're coming down a level. Then you could say, okay, we're going to look at the firmware that's running on the processor before it runs the operating system. And that's down a level. You know, and maybe you're doing some circuit board analysis and that's around that level. And then you would say, I'm going to look at the actual silicon on the chip in the phone that's running the things. And at that point, you're kind of at the lowest possible level you can get to inside of a device where no matter where someone's trying to keep secrets or keys hidden or things like that, it's like once you get down to that level, there's just nowhere left to hide something. Like you're kind of you pulled all the the clothes back and you're just looking at the the thing the way it is. So, so you're actually actually looking at the you know the gates and stuff, the transistors inside a chip. How, I mean, because when you say that, you say these pro this physical probes. Or you yeah. said it's- so you you have to you'd have to look at pictures of them. So they'll have these tiny. Um, it'll be like a bed that that you'd have the chip on, and these kind of probe manipulators, and they have these little knobs on them. And so you're moving things at the micron scale like of how you're trying to position, almost like an etch a sketch. You're doing that the you etch a sketch and everything there. It's fantastic. That's it, yeah, that's but with you but are. with a chip, right? Yeah. Um, so depending on on what it is, so there's. So there's a, you know, decapping a chip and trying to actually uh, look at it, get an understanding of how things are structured. I mean, if you if you've looked at a circuit board, you know, you, you know, kind of there's parts on the circuit board and there's all the little traces that are routed that connect everything up. Silicon is really the same. It's just at a much smaller level. So huh. you'd see different sections of the silicon. You see all the little kind of traces that are running and routing things together um, and all that. It's just obviously much, much tinier. So like over here, I have like uh, a regular microscope. This is a metallurgical microscope that I kind of rotated my computer sure. to. And so that when I decap a chip lets you go down and look at it about a hundred X and see the features, you know, that are on the silicon and everything to try to like, say a chip isn't labeled, 
And so you want to figure out what it is. You decap it. You look at the silicon. And a lot of times they'll put a part number on the silicon because everything needs a part number somewhere, you know, for keeping track and all these things. Um, and so that's one way to do an initial analysis. Uh, and then as you as you kind of zoom in further, like as stuff gets smaller or you really want to understand it, that's where things like a scanning electron microscope come into play. Um, and when you say, say decap it, basically you're you're taking the, the outer layer, outer protective layer off of it, so you can see the the inner the innards. So so yeah, so say, so a, yeah, so a microchip is basically like you know, or or yeah, any chip like that. It's basically a little way for a silicon, and then because that's super sensitive, they have to put it into a package of some kind. And the package is usually what you think of when you see the microchip, the little black square with the leads coming out of all the sides. That's a carrier for the silicon. So inside of that, if you can dissolve away that, uh, it's usually an epoxy type structure that makes up the chip itself. If you can dissolve that away, inside is the silicon. And then once you dissolve it away, you can look at the silicon and get an idea for how it's structured. Maybe it has a, a ROM section that's hard coded into it. You know, it's it's boot up memory or something else. And so a lot of times you, you can find stuff online of people that you can actually look at that under a microscope if it's a hard coded ROM and literally read out the ones and zeros. Really? And put back together what the boot code might be. Yeah. Really? That's 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 amazing. It's interesting how how, how deep this kind of thing goes. Um, yeah. So so the rabbit hole goes way down. Right. And so part of it is I've shopped for electron microscopes. There's a guy that's in Europe somewhere right now. He had a Hackaday page. He's actually trying to build his own scanning electron microscope from scratch. That's interesting to me because I have a lot of machine tools in the garage. I have milling machines and lathes and welders and all these things. And so I also enjoy the metalworking aspect of stuff and the precision of, you know, yeah. clock making I've dabbled in and stuff really? like that. So, um, well, let me ask you this, you know, you know, I, I learn stuff, I keep learning stuff and I always feel like I'm not, I always feel like I know what I'm doing, even though like, like logically I know what I know more than I did five years ago. You know what I mean? Do you, supposedly, you, uh, supposedly now hash, do you feel, you seem like you know what you're doing. Do you ever feel like you've mastered your craft or you feel like you're still a beginner? Uh, I frequently feel like I don't know what I'm doing and maybe I'm not smart enough to do what I'm trying to do. I've just learned that that I probably shouldn't think about myself that way hmm. and that I do make progress. So for a long time, my mental kind of operating system was to beat myself up to the point of you better figure this out or people will know you're a dumb right like so yeah. so that was that was my mental operating system and at some point i realized that's probably not super productive like maybe i should cheer myself on instead of beat myself with a whip because in the end i do figure it out so am i going to be in agony the whole process or could perhaps i enjoy the journey because the end of the journey is so such a small piece that if your satisfaction only comes from the end of the journey it's going to be pretty rough right so i definitely don't feel that I know, like I always go into things. Now I go into things and I, I just know if I do it long enough, I'll figure it out. So the yeah, question is, that's true. do I want to commit to doing it? That's really the only question because it will be figured out. It's only a matter of time. So am I willing to grind it out as long as it takes to figure it out? Right. That's and so point. I don't, I don't really question anymore whether I'll figure things out. 
I just really question at the start, do I want to potentially invest two years? Because once I start doing it, my brain doesn't want to let me stop. So am I willing? So I basically, I should either never start or if I do, I'm just really in it for the long haul, you know? Um, So that it's kind of, I guess, just learning about yourself, you know? Right. I mean, yeah, you hear about some of the, you know, I think in like Newton and um, Einstein, you know, just basically having to invent whole new methods of, you know, they're trying to figure certain things out, but they had to go through this process of inventing basically new, new mathematical models. It's just, it's just mind, it's mind blowing. And, you know, you wonder if those people ever thought they were, you know, maybe they thought the same thing. Maybe they never came to the conclusion that you, that you have. I think think maybe you start with, I, I start with the premise that someone could figure it out. And so if someone could figure it out, then why not me? Exactly. Right? And so, Absolutely. So, and then it's a matter of time. And also, can you rally other people to maybe come help out? Yeah. Because other people might have different ways to look at it. So a lot of the YouTube stuff and things I do is try to say, hey, this could be fun. I know smart meters seem maybe like they're this boring thing, but they're actually pretty interesting. They could be fun. It's a fun project. You'll learn a lot along the way, and you can apply that to other things you do. So, you know, it's not that it's very domain specific. It really does transfer across as you learn more stuff. Yeah, for um, sure. And so the more people that join in, the more of a chance you have of figuring it out and learning new things and meeting interesting people, right? Sure. You know, I, I work, I guess I still am an engineer. I, you know, I, I got a job as an engineer and I feel like you do that and people look at you and as an engineer, they think this guy knows, this guy should know what he's doing. But, I, you know, you get to a situation, you almost never, you almost never know what you're doing. But you do have the ability to figure it out. I, I think that's the, maybe the, I don't know. <laughs> well, I would say it's, I feel like it's maybe, it's a function of, of getting older and also getting more experience. Like the more you learn, the more you realize like that you don't know. And you also know of all the, like the, the amount of edge cases that open up to you only expand over time because you've seen more and more throughout life so it's like you know when somebody asks you something that the answer usually isn't simple and that there's probably a lot of analysis and complexities and things that could be there Um, but to your point you also know that you can figure it out like you are capable and you have a a way of doing it but but it is complex and and everything right you know maybe that's you know people maybe think you learn stuff with experience but maybe it's more I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's something a little bit different. You learn that you can, you have more confidence in your ability to figure it out, even if maybe you don't, you don't know, still don't know what you're doing. You just know that you can, you can know it at some point. I don't know. That's, yeah, and and that's the same thing. I mean, you know, with a lot of these, uh, the stuff I've started with, even like um, I always wanted to kind of really learn C plus plus and these other things, you know, and and those I think are all achievable kinds of things. Like it's just a matter of putting in the time. And, and doing it and slogging through the tough parts and setting goals and stuff like that. And so I think it's like that with any of this stuff. You know, if you want to learn any kind of new skill, it's just a matter of, of structuring it and doing it and telling yourself like at the start that, you know, you can like that's just my view. Like if anyone else can do something, then I don't think there's a reason that we can't do it. We just have to decide that we're going to do it and how hard we're going to push and how much we're going to work on it. And, and what we're going to consider an acceptable level, 
you know, for to get to. Um, and then you go, you go do it. Sure. Uh, when you say we, that's not just the three of us. That's everybody listening too. That's all the listeners too. Group. Yeah. Everyone. Yeah. We can. Yeah. So all pass, of us can pass do it, it on to somebody else so they can do it. Yeah. Too. No, that's that's the best way. That's the best way to learn and stuff. Somebody else. Do. Have somebody but, else uh, learn it for me. But you know, I, I think it, I think it's too like kind of a. Um, I don't know, and I'm not really good at this, but you, maybe you got to make your choices as to what what you're going to learn because you've only got so much time. You know, I you know I want to learn everything, but you can't do that, and uh, it's unfortunate. But yeah, that's that's, that's the that way it is. I would say that's probably my number one struggle. You know, it's like when I was a kid, I had time and no money. Now I have money and less time, and so all the things that I wanted to buy and learn about, I can buy now, but then. Do I have enough time to really dive into them and learn about what it is? So I, I have kind of a number of different hobbies and interests um, from metalworking to this scanning electron microscope stuff to hardware to want to learn more about software to software defined radio and RF stuff. And so I kind of just cycle around in those hobbies almost and in those interests. So I'll dive deep into maybe machining for a while and then I'll move over and I'll come over back to circuit analysis or something and then i'll push back into software to find radio and and so i it you know i i try to keep it focused like on the smart meter stuff i've tried to keep right. all those interests focused into this one thing so i can make a lot of progress on it um but it is it is a challenge because there's when when you find everything in the world interesting to learn about you just don't have the time to do all of it right even if you didn't have a job even if you could just do it 100 percent of the time you still there's only so much time right yep what do you think, Pat? You think that's, think that's accurate? I do think it's accurate. I still, even though I don't go to a day job, I still only have so much time. And But I have less money because of that, too. So I'm, <laughs> yeah, I can't just yeah. go out and buy everything either. I have to, you know, make those choices. I Constraints for, are good, though, you know. Yeah. I, I work for myself, and I guess I thought that, I thought I would have more time. And it's it's, it's a weird thing, because on the one hand, I, I can take an afternoon off to do you know, if a friend was in town yesterday, I spent, you know, a couple hours with him, whatever. I couldn't just do that at a regular job. But at the same time, I work, I work a lot, probably more than I did when I had a regular job. You know, you do the best you can, I guess. So. It's all you can do, Jeremy. Yeah. It's the best you can. Do your best. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it sounds like you've, you've managed to keep a, keep a job that we can't talk, that we can't talk about and, and do some really, really amazing hobbies. I mean, it, it's awesome how Truly much you've been amazing. able to. Yeah, I think I think the the nights and weekends and and the other time, you know, if you can if you can structure it in a way where you can make a bit of progress and it keeps becoming additive, then it's pretty good. Like a lot of my early struggles would be I'd want to work on something for hours and hours and hours and kind of get in the zone and and just yeah. let it run as long as possible. And the reality is with like work and a family and all these things like too many other people have to pay the price for you to kind of be able to get in that zone and do that. So what I've realized over time is that I have to structure what I do and and chunk it more so that I can advance a bit and and get the sense of accomplishment of having you know had a little time in advance without everyone else having to pay the price for whatever this thing is I'm doing, which in the rea- the grand scheme of things probably isn't super important you know it's like if you're on your deathbed and your family's left you you're probably not going to be super stoked that you're reverse engineered smart meters you know so it's like you do kind of have to keep things contained but at the same time it's like 
yeah, if you can make that small progress, I think, then over time, what you see, a lot of the stuff I'm doing, people will say, like, must be nice to just be able to work on this all the time and all this stuff. Yeah. I get comments of people saying that. The reality is, like, when you look at something over the span of a few years, if you just make a little progress every single week, in a few years, you can't even imagine where you'll be if you're doing it. And and that's what a lot of this stuff is. It's like looking at it now, it's like, you know, it seems super in-depth and all this stuff that's been done. And it's really just a little bit of progress over over yeah. years, you know. Well, that's true. Well, also, we, we really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to us today. That's, that's really awesome. I mean, you know, you know. Yeah, we're, you we're be all busy on a smart meter right now. Yeah, and you're not, and you're <laughs> you just delayed the next episode on the YouTube channel by at least an hour. Oh, yeah, man. at least. Well, goodness. But um, but yeah, we really appreciate. Uh, is, there, is there anything else you wanted to tell us about before we close the uh, the podcast out? Uh, I just encourage people to check out the YouTube channel. Leave uh, comments and feedback. It's uh, the Richesum channel on YouTube, and that's that's spelled. Um, R-E-C-E-S-S-I-M. Is that, that right? Correct. So Yeah. And so you'll see it. If you search smart meters on YouTube, I think it's probably the first thing that's going to come up. Um, you know, and, and uh, it's kind of like the way I run it is a choose your adventure story. So everything you see up until now that's been posted, it's kind of where I am. And what I talk about in the next video, I'm going to try to figure out and do for the next video. So it's not a, you know, a scripted 20 part series. And I already know what the conclusion is. Like <laughs> if I say, we're going to try to hack something for the next video, like I'm literally going to go try to see if I can figure it out for the next video. Like it's, it's unknown in the comments people leave. I let it drive the direction I oh, go and, that's, uh, that's and nice. what I ultimately do. Yeah. Well, you seem to be um, doing a very good awesome. job and YouTube seems to think you're doing a good job at it too. As far as I can tell your subscriber count is growing nicely you're doing you're doing a good job yeah i appreciate that nice and uh pat where, where can we find you if if we wanted to find you oh why would anybody want to find me jeremy i'm at uh, uh patshead.com and i have a youtube channel but i hardly ever post anything there so but you can find all my stuff at patshead.com how about yeah. you jeremy where can we find you well i've got a website as well jeremyscook.com or i'm on twitter at jeremyscook and if you if you google jeremy s cook i, I think i should come up um, but you know, I'm, I'm around, so, but, uh, but yeah, well, Hash, we, uh, we really appreciate it. We, we enjoyed talking about everything with you and yeah, I guess. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. I, I enjoyed, fun. uh, I enjoyed being on it and just chatting about, uh, all, all kinds of interests and hopefully some of them are interesting to people. Yeah. <laughs> all right. We'll see you later. See you later, everybody. Bye now. <laughs>